Father in heaven, once again, we just want to know how to increase life. We want to know how to reflect your character. We want to reflect your image in life as a witness. And we just pray that anything that we can learn to help us to do that, that you would give us the eyes and the ears to see and hear. In Jesus' name. Okay, I forgot on the previous one to have somebody count, but I think pretty much the same people are in here. I don't think we changed too much, so if I could ask somebody, one of you to volunteer to count how many people are in the class and, and put it down there, I'd appreciate it. Thank you. Okay, so what we need to do is, what I'm going to do here is we're going to look at a few different reports, soil reports, and look at how they represent the information. I could... Some labs won't let you have a, I didn't have one because I don't work with them and they won't give you a sample uh, report. Some of them have gone only to working with consultants. They don't work with individual farmers or uh, other individuals at all. They only will do the lab reports, lab tests for um, consultants. So you can't, you can't get them unless you're actually signed up with them as a consultant. So we'll work with the ones that I have. There's actually one I just realized it didn't have up, and if I can find it quick enough, I'll put up there that I wanted to illustrate uh, a CEC that's not a TEC. But this, this is a sample lab report from Logan Labs. Has anybody heard of Logan Labs before? Um, a lot of people use this lab. This Based on the Albrecht modeling, this is probably the closest, if I could say that, I'm reluctant to say it, but this probably comes the closest to the model of any lab that does not run the right analytical methods. Okay, you'll see when you get down into the trace elements, it goes off. You would, well, you wouldn't know that because you're not familiar with those numbers, but uh, remember I said it's particularly in the trace elements where it, it's... It's very different. So what you'll typically see on a soil report is, you know, they'll have the location. This is identifying so that the grower knows, well, which, which sample is this, which lab report is this for the sample. It's just, it'll tell you location, sample ID. There sometimes will be a lab number on there. That's for the benefit of the lab and for you to know, you know, what's what with this. What, what are these numbers coming from? Um, some labs, like Logan, will put on their sample depth in inches. I'll just mention here they have six inches there. Most labs base their analytical method, their analytics and their interpretive methods on about a six and a half to seven inch plow layer. That's about two million pounds of soil in general. Not always. If you, you can go out west where there's higher mineralization and it may be 2.2 million pounds in a plow layer because it's just heavier. There's a lot more metals in it because of the, the mineral elements there. doesn't mean it's balanced. Uh, and you can have some places where are very deficient in uh, mineral elements that are highly weathered and they can actually be you know, a little bit less. But in general, it's two million pounds. And the, the, the variation here for most people is not a significant factor until you've done a whole lot of other things, until you've addressed a whole lot of other things. Then if you want to refine it down a little bit and figure out what your bulk density of your soil is and then have whoever you're working with, if it's you yourself or if it, you're working with somebody to help you know what to do, you can tweak that just a little bit to get a little more, little more refinement and, and honing in on, on the, you know, a more refined application. 
Um, you normally, when you're taking a sample, you want to take it from a, the depth of your, your probes, or if you're using like a trowel or something to take slices, you want to take about a six and a half, consistently take a six and a half to seven inch um, core because that's going to represent the soil that you're going to fertilize. Because the assumption is that you're going to till it in. Okay, if you're, let's say you're taking a sample in a fruit orchard and you're not going to till the fruit orchard, you would only want to take about a four inch depth. The reason for that is because you're going to apply it on the surface and if you took one to a six inch depth and then you, you applied that amount of material, you would have a lot more concentration up there on the surface than you really want. Because remember, that's where most of the aerobic activity is happening up in the two, top two to three inches. If you put enough amendments on there to address six and a half to seven inches, then um, it's gonna get, it can be too concentrated and it can cause problems for you. So if you're not going to disturb the soil, it's best to do a four inch depth. If you're going to be working the soil, then um, six and a half to seven inch. You've probably heard, uh, some of you may have heard that Bob Gregory does a 12 inch deep sample. Okay, now what's important, it's not necessarily, see the lab is not going to know whether you pulled a four inch sample or you pulled a six and a half inch sample or a 10 inch sample or an 18 inch sample, they're not going to know. So um, if you were to pull a 12 inch sample, you need to be sure that you're capable of incorporating that material to about six to eight inches. So that you've, you've because when you're taking a 12 inch sample, you're, taking, you're measuring 12 inches of soil volume. You're not at two million pounds anymore. You're, you're now at you know, close to three and a half, four million pounds of soil. And so if you take that and then you apply it up on the top two to three inches or even three or four inches, it's going to be, you know, quite a bit more concentrated than you really want it to be. So you can take a soil sample. I mean, there are growers that take a sample down to six inches, then they take the next six inches, and they take the next six inches. A lot of uh, nut growers and everything, they'll take samples all the way down to 24 inches. They want to know what's everywhere because they want to know what they may be able to tap. It's not necessarily that they're going to apply anything to that depth, but they want to know what they might be able to get from that part of the soil what their trees can possibly get from it. So it's all about you know, making sure that whatever depth it is that you take, um, you're able to incorporate that material so that it's going to be incorporated into the majority of that area, not just up on the, on the very surface of it. So if you're not tilling your soil, what depth are you going to take? Four about four inches, because you're going to be applying it to the surface. Okay, so up here a little bit further. Almost all, all tests, there are some labs that do not run exchange. This, Logan happens to call it total exchange capacity. The ME just measure, means milliequivalence. It's the, it's the way they measure it. It's the unit of measure. So don't, unless you're just really going to be into this and you want to find out, then that, that's all that means is milliequivalence. It's the unit of measure, that, how they're representing it. Um, so they call it total exchange capacity. There are labs that do not run cation exchange as the basis for their analysis. Uh, international Ag Labs, is anybody familiar with International Ag Labs? Anybody that follows the Reams, Reams approach? Um, international Ag Labs normally does not run cation exchange. They run a totally di different analytical method using the, the Lamott method. Um, I will just tell you, I would just express this concern with you. 
If you don't know what size your bucket is, how do you know what you need to put in it? You can't know, can you? You don't know. What if you have a one-gallon bucket and you put five gallons worth of stuff in it? Or a five-gallon bucket and you put one gallon of stuff in it? If you don't know the capacity of your soil, you, you can't know what to apply to it. That's the concern I have with that approach. And I've dealt with growers who use that and have gotten themselves into trouble. And then we did simultaneous tests. We sent them to both labs, sent them there, sent them to Kinsey Ag uh, to have the test done. And he came back, and I'll explain why, he came back excessive in calcium and phosphorus. And his analysis from International Ag Labs told him to put soft rock phosphate on. Do you know what's in soft rock phosphate? Well, the name itself tells you what one thing is. Phosphate. And he's excessive already. And, he, and the other component of soft rock phosphate is calcium. And he was excessive in calcium. Well, he'd been following this practice for several years. And they have an inclination to recommend soft rock phosphate pretty much all the time. And, and so, you know, I told him, I said, can you, you know, you're, you reconcile this. You know, this is what this is showing you, that you've exceeded the capacity of this bucket and you've exaggerated these two things, but they're telling you to put more on. So you need to sort this out with them. You, you need to ask them. So they actually ran a, they ran a cation exchange for him and it came back and it showed him excessive. And they still recommended he put it on. <laughs> um, I don't want to get into the whys and the wherefores of all of that, but I'm just saying that, that my concern with that whole process, there is a lot of valuable information within that school of thought. I just want to say that. But I know that if you don't know the capacity of your soil, you can't know how much you need to apply to it. You can't, there's just no way to know it. You're just guessing. You know, one of the things that Dr. Reams would always say, well, you need to put two to, was it two to 8,000 pounds of calcium on your soil? Well, which is it? How do you know which one it is? He knew that there was a, a range of what you would need, but if you don't measure the capacity of the soil, how do you know? Is it 2,000 pounds? Is it 4,000? Is it 8,000? Is it 3,500? What is it? You need to know. So I do know in particular that, that, that International Ag Labs, they don't measure CEC normally. Now they can do it. I don't know how they're, how they're doing that analysis, so I couldn't tell you, you know, what method they're using on that. You would have to ask them. Um, so they don't use, that's one example, and I don't have, I did actually have one of those I could have put in here, but they don't, they don't actually run exchange capacity, so you wouldn't see it on their test. Um, the next thing you're going to see on a soil test, of course, is the pH. And... Um, remember I said pH is just the measure of how much exchangeable hydrogen is in the soil. It's not how much exchangeable calcium is, it's not how much exchangeable magnesium is, not or potassium or sodium, which are the other, the four major influencers on pH. When your pH is low, which tells you that your hydrogen level is high, your exchangeable hydrogen is high, the more hydrogen ions you have, the more acidic your soil gets, so the lower your pH gets. Everybody follow that? Okay, so, I'm sorry? The, the, the higher, the more exchangeable hydrogen in your soil, the more acidic it is. And so the lower the pH goes. 
it's the way they it's the way they measure it and i always get accused of being too advanced for people and getting over their heads so i'm not going to explain the logarithmic <laughs> explanation of ph here if you want to go search it and look it up there's a reason it goes down when it when hydrogen goes up the quantity of hydrogen goes up um, but just know that you know the, the more hydrogen ions there are in the soil, they're acid forming. Remember I said it's a cation that's acid forming? And so the more that's there, the more acid the soil is going to be. What it's telling you is there's not enough alkaline cations. That hydrogen, the plant roots give off the hydrogen ions, and the microbes give off the hydrogen ions, and they exchange them for the nutritive elements. Hydrogen is not a nutritive element. Uh, and they exchange them for nutritive elements, calcium, magnesium, potassium, sodium, off of the exchange complex. And so the hydrogen takes the place of the calcium, the magnesium, or one of the other um, alkaline cations. And when that alkalinity is taken away and the acidity is added, the pH goes down. It becomes more acidic. And so growers will, will, will take their soil test and they'll look at the pH. And a lot of times you used to get a test that was just pH, phosphate, and potassium. And nitrogen was recommended based on the crop. So they were just seeing if you had enough phosphate and potassium there to grow the crop or if you're going to have to add some. And what the pH was to see if you were going to have to lime. So there are two different kinds of lime. There's calcitic lime, which is high calcium lime, has very little magnesium in it. And there's dolomitic lime, which is about twice as much calcium as it is, mag and there's magnesium in it. It's about twice as much calcium as there is magnesium. And growers will apply lime just to neutralize the pH. Now, pH matters because the pH of the soil is going to determine the availability of different nutrients. Um, and so it does matter. But the, what, how you address pH, what is it that you need to correct about the pH is what, where people get lost. So growers, depending on what part of the country they're from and what the limestone quarries are in that area, that's the type of lime they'll apply because they're just adjusting the pH. They're not addressing what alkaline cations are missing. They're just adjusting the pH to get it back up to 7, to neutral. And so I can tell by looking at the soil tests that I get from different parts of the country where I know what the parent material is there. So it's the, cal the, the limestone cores are high calcium limestone cores. And in Kentucky, you know, pretty much everything is high calcium limestone cores. Indiana is the same way. You get over into Virginia, it's dolomite lime stone quarries there. And so in Kentucky and Indiana and places I work like that, if anything, people are excessive in calcium and deficient in magnesium. And I get over into North Carolina and Virginia and places like that, um, they're excessive in magnesium and they're deficient in calcium because they're using dolomite lime over there. They're just adjusting pH. Nobody's addressing what the nutritive need is, what's missing because there's too much hydrogen there. And nobody's asking that question. And so pH matters as far as availability because the, the pH of the soil will determine how available a nutrient is. And they have charts. I didn't put it in here, but you can look it up, a pH, you know, availability chart at what pH. Um, and did anybody grow blueberries in here? Tried. <laughs> tried. I know a lot of people that tried. <laughs> I have one guy, one guy who worked for the university tried three times and they died on them all three times, trying to use the practices that... And he, here's the thing, the best blueberries don't grow in acid soil. I bet you were told that, weren't you? Um, the best blueberries don't grow in acid soil. The reason that they say you have to grow them in acid soil is because they found them in the wild, in the pine barrens of New Jersey, Michigan, and Maine. You know, acid sandstone formations, poor fertility, 
Blueberries require a lot of iron and manganese, and the only way they get them is if it's really acidic, because the more acidic it is, the more available iron and manganese is. But at the acidity levels, the pHs that they say you have to grow blueberries at, you can deal with potential manganese toxicity if you happen to be in a part of the country where manganese levels are naturally high. You can deal with aluminum toxicity because free aluminum begins, begins uh, attaching to the colloids rather than um, alkaline uh, elements like calcium and magnesium. Um, and really what it comes down, uh, and I've a I asked, honestly, I asked the big nurseries, I asked the, the universities that, in the states that grow most of the blueberries, please tell me why you have to grow it that way. And the, the, the repetitive answer was, you just have to grow it that way. Is that, that's not a scientific answer. Let me tell you a few things that don't happen. One of the things you'll, because you're growing in that condition, um, They'll tell you blueberries can't use nitrate nitrogen. And uh, they say it can't process, it can't metabolize nitrate nitrogen. Do you know what's required to metabolize nitrate nitrogen? Molybdenum is required for the nitrate reductase enzyme and the nitrogenase enzyme. And without it, and, and also, as a secondary factor, cobalt is required because the nitrogen-fixing organisms require cobalt. They require B12, so they have to have cobalt. Um, cobalt is not an issue in a, an acidic soil. It's more available if it's, if it's there. In some cases, it's not there. But molybdenum requires a higher pH to be available. And it, you, if you have it, you probably only have maybe a pound, maybe two pounds in an entire two million, two million pound plow layer in an acre. That's all you have. You don't need very much of it. But in most cases, there's not enough. But if you lower the pH that low, you just made the blueberry plant dysfunctional because it cannot get molybdenum to process the nitrate nitrogen. So of course it's not going to be able to process nitrate nitrogen. If you, supply, if you balance the pH and you supply the molybdenum, then it can handle nitrate nitrogen. So. Um, Another one they tell you is it's a calcifuge, and what they mean by that is that the calcium is toxic to it. Um, it's actually a magnesiophile. It needs to have available magnesium, and there's, there's, it's very sensitive to that. But without calcium, when, when, a, when a flower pollinates, there's a rapid cell division time there where the embryo rapidly divides. How many divisions there are is determined by how many calcium is there. Now, what do you think that would affect? It would affect the size of the blueberry. Because what's going to happen next is the potassium is going to start filling out all those cells. And let's say, just to throw numbers out there, it's a lot more than that, but let's say there's 10 cells that, after the multiplication process, and there's 50 cells after the multiplication process. Which, thing, which do you think is going to be a bigger berry? If you start with 50 cells or 10? you're going to get much bigger yields because you're going to get, you're, once the berry establishes, the potential for size is going to be a lot bigger. And then calcium is also essential in cell wall structure. And so if you want them to hold up, you've got to have, and you want it to have immunity, you've got to have it. So uh, growing in a very acidic soil like that, calcium is hardly available. And they're already depriving it, trying to keep it, depriving it of calcium to try to keep the pH low. And so... Um, <coughs> 
you ha what, what I'm saying by this is I'm using blueberries because it's kind of one of those extreme conditions. There are very specific needs that the blueberry has, but a complete and balanced soil provides everything that that plant needs. And the best blueberries and the highest yields, the best tasting blueberries grow on a healthy, balanced soil, not on an acidic soil. So, um, so anyway, when you see your pH is low, it's telling you you're missing cation nutrients. You know, alkaline cation, nutritive nutrients. You're missing calcium, you're missing magnesium. It's not telling you how much of those you're missing or which ones you're missing. It's just telling you you're missing those. Your job now is to determine which ones am I missing. By applying the ones that you're missing to the levels that they should be at, your pH will automatically adjust to where it should be. Which is in a balanced soil, it'll always wind up between six and six and a half. It's usually, depending on where you maintain, where you have to maintain calcium sometimes, if you have a calcareous soil, or uh, where you choose to maintain potassium, because you may maintain it a little bit higher. For woody plants, they require a lot more potassium, so you may maintain it a little bit higher. Um, but it's always going to fall generally between six and six and a half, and typically it's six three to six four. It doesn't fall at neutral. A lot of people think that it should be at neutral, but you actually want some acidity in the soil because that's how you you're, take advantage of the parent material that you have there. You know, if you have phosph phosphorus in the soil, if you have potassium in the soil, which most soils do, that's how that materials the the acidity is transferred from the colloid to the rock material in the soil and that acidity breaks down that rock material and makes available the nutrients that are in it, whether it's potassium or phosphate or calcium or whatever in there. So you want a slight acidity there. You don't want it necessarily neutral. It's not going to hurt you if it's necessarily neutral, but you won't have as much advantage as you would otherwise. Um, the next thing that's going to be on, so does everybody get the pH thing? It's just telling you that you're missing something and then you have to figure out what am I missing? What needs to be there? It's not there. It's been taken in the growth process and needs to be replenished. Because I have to, you know, a lot of the lime that's used, by the way, is coarse lime. It's called ag lime. It's usually what comes off the crusher belt, with, with, you know, in rock quarries. It's the stuff that falls through the belt. They just scoop it all up and they sell it as lime. They were selling it in my area for 50 cents a ton. They're just trying to, it's a waste product for them. They're just trying to get it out of there because they can't sell it as a rock and I, I asked the extension agent I said what's the do you have the analysis for that quarry because I was wanting to know because I needed some calcium and they don't know I mean it's it's just what the effective neutralizing value is it's a number based on hundred percent calcium carbonate they have what they call an effective neutralizing value and she could tell me that I said well what's the finest of grind and she said what <laughs> what do you mean I've had growers, look, it's because they're just putting it on to adjust pH, and re they really, really don't know a lot more than that about it. And you've got people working at these places that are just there to do a job and get a paycheck. They're not really there as informed, engaged, interested people in what they're doing. I've had actually, actually had people get upset with growers when they called to ask, which type of lime is this? They were told, what difference does it make? It's lime. You know? Because they're just adjusting pH. They're not addressing nutritional deficiencies and missing, missing things. Okay, organic matter. Um, again, I told you that, it could, that they can be representing this two different ways. I, don't, I think that this is loss on incineration that, that uh, Logan uses, not Walkley Black. And so your real active uh, colloidal humus is probably lower than this. Now, I'm not saying, I, I, I believe that that's the case here but I'm not definitely sure that they're not using the Walkley Black. 
Most people have gone away from the Walkley Black method because the loss on incineration is a cheaper, faster test, and it, chromium is required required in the Walkley Black process, and that's expensive. And uh, they also have to handle it as a hazardous waste, the, the, the lab, and so that's a hassle for them. So they just went away from it, even though they don't get as accurate information with it on it. So you don't know which one of that is. I don't know what on, on Logan. What I, when I, the one that I use, which is Perilabs, which is via Kinsey Ag Services, it's Walkley Black. It's actually colloidal humus. It's not total organic matter percent. So you real, what the number you get is telling you, is telling you what you really have as far as um, active, what was called active humus, which is a char. It has that colloidal charge on it, and it actually holds nutritive elements in that way. Organic matter actually holds nutrient elements in another way, which is absorbed inside as opposed to adsorbed, which is just attached to the outside. That's what a charge is. So you get both storages that way. Um, so the reason I'm telling you this is because if you have another lab report and you want to have a little bit better knowledge of what it is that you got there, you might want to ask some questions about how they're deriving the numbers that they're deriving. Um, okay, then you get down into, you get down into the numbers. They're either usually represented uh, the different elements, the anions you see up there, sulfur, and they don't even list nitrogen up here uh, with the ENR on theirs. I don't think it's on here. No. Um, they don't even put an ENR on there. The one, the, the one that I do, the one that I use, has an ENR. And like I said, it's just uh, telling you, you know, estimating based on the organic matter percentage that you have how much nitrogen you can expect to become available from that source that you can, you can kind of bank on being made available to your crop. You'll see here under phosphorus, um, they say it's malic 3 there. They're telling you that that's the process they're using to derive this phosphorus. So I do not know personally enough about what the numbers should be for phosphorus based on the malic 3 analytical method to tell you whether those numbers are good or they're not. I don't know. If it was based on the Bray P2, which is a strong acid extract, the one that Dr. Albrecht used, and there's some arguments about all this stuff of why and why not and everything, but I honestly can't tell you what those numbers mean. I don't, it, that on my soil test, and I'm going to show you that in a minute, the way I do it, the way Kinsey Ag does it, we, uh, they primarily do it. I do it more than they do, actually. I will put a desired value there. And this is one of the things you should expect from a lab. If they know what they're doing, they should be able to tell you what your desired value is. What value, what quantity of material should you expect to have be there? And they should be able to tell you the value found. As you see here with calcium and magnesium pests, they should be able to tell you what is the desired value based on the capacity of that soil and how much, base, how much saturation of that cation you want, um, which you'll see down here in just a second we're going to go through, they should tell you what that is, and they, then they should be able to, by their analytic, analytics, tell you what was actually there, the value found, and then you will know, am I short? Am I excessive? I mean, at least then, like say on this one, in this particular first one here, they're short 53 pounds. This is based on pounds per acre. You see they did sulfur up there as parts per million. The other thing I did on mine with all the major elements was to put it all in pounds because I, I just, 
a lot of people get lost with the parts per million thing. It's easier for the people that work with it, but uh, I do stuff that I have to do in metric for Australia and um, Africa. So I just convert it to kilograms per hectare and I just do it that way. But, you know, I put it all in pounds, all of them, just so that they're all consistent. You're looking at them. Uh, you'll also notice another thing is here, as P205, that's the form that the plant utilizes. It's the form, when you buy a bag of fertilizer and you have the num three numbers on there, the second number represents phosphate, not phosphorus. Over in Australia, they measure it as phosphorus. And so over here, if you had uh, triple superphosphate, which is 0460, 46% phosphate, over in Australia, it's 020 because you have to multiply phosphate by 0.44 to get the actual phosphorus content. And so over in Australia, it's 020. Well, they used to have a product in this country that was 020, and, and it was a, a precursor to the 0460 that was less concentrated. But if you actually turn that into phosphorus, then it would only be about 8 instead of 20. It would be 080 instead of 020 here. This is a confusing thing to growers, and nobody seems to know why. They, well, they, part of the argument is they, they, they represented it, instead of representing it as the element, which all the rest are, well, I take that. On this test, it is. I'll, I'll talk about potassium when we get there. They're representing this as a compound. And so it doesn't, some people say, well, they did that because then people would think they were getting more in the bag of fertilizer, so they thought it was worth what they were paying for it or whatever. I think it probably was just because that's the form the plant uses. But if you're going to make that argument, the form that, of sulfur that the plant uses is sulfate. So why not represent sulfur as sulfate instead of elemental, elemental sulfur? And the reason I'm, I'm talking about this is because um, people say sulfur is considered a secondary element, not a primary or a major element. It's considered secondary of the major elements. It's considered secondary. Phosphorus will not leach from the soil unless it gets in extremely excessive levels. It has to erode away. It has to wash away with the soil or blow away with the soil in the air. Once it's there, it's there. It's not going anywhere. Sulfur easily leaches out of the soil. And so you can lose it easy. Now the big thing, if you actually took sulfur and compared it to phosphorus as sulfate, or you took phosphorus and made it phosphorus instead of phosphate to compel element to element. It takes as much and sometimes more if you're growing specific kinds of vegetables and fruits, as much or more sulfur than it does phosphorus. And yet it's considered a secondary element and it leaches. And I can tell you that on this soil test I see almost consistently, unless they've got another issue going on, uh, they're deficient in sulfur. And part of the reason this is happening is because the average age of the farming community is, is 60. I don't know exactly what the number is now, but it's about 60 years. I mean, it's, that's, a, that's a terrible statistic for any vocation to have your average age at 60. It should be down around 30 or something. But the, the problem here is that most growers are still thinking in the past of what conditions were in the past. A lot of sulfur came from burning of coal, the burning of gasoline. It was incidental in that O20O I told you about. They would take rock phosphate and they would react it with sulfuric acid. And that would, remember the other element in rock phosphate is calcium. And so 
they would concentrate the phosphorus from it, but then they would get calcium sulfate or gypsum. And so that was the material, and that's what they used for a long time. And so growers were getting calcium and sulfur, and they weren't even thinking they were getting it. They just thought they were, they were uh, getting phosphorus. That's gone. That material's not available anymore. They took the sulfur out of the coal stacks. They took it out of the gasoline. And all the places that incidental sulfur was coming from is gone, and farmers are still thinking 30 years ago when that was all the case. And so they all think that they're fine with their sulfur and they're all deficient with sulfur. Why does this matter? When wheat is grown on soil sulfur, that's sulfur deficient, when you grind, here, here you're thinking you're, you're uh, trying to do something good, healthy for your family. You'll take whole wheat berries, you'll grind them as fresh flour, you'll make it into a loaf of bread and you'll put it in your oven and you know what happens as soon as it goes above 160 degrees? If that's sulfur deficient, it starts producing the carcinogen acrylamide. So it matters. It really matters. But we have to, you know, we get stuck sometimes, you know, the older we get especially, we kind of stay stuck with our thinking the way it was in the past and times change on us, things change and we don't really take them into consideration. Okay, but anyway, even on those two, they don't have it there. You should have an ENR on your, on your soil report that tells you what the estimated nitrogen release is for you. You should have that on there. They don't have it on theirs. Um, they should, even on sulfur and phosphorus, they're anions, you show, showing it there, they're anions. It's not based on a percentage, it's based on how many pounds, but they still should be able to tell you you know, what your desired range of, of phosphorus should be, what the desired range of sulfur should be. You should have that number there, and you should have the number. This is telling you. These are samples, and I don't know if they were taken from real soil tests or not, but you can see every single one of those sulfur levels is, because that test is pretty standard, but every one of those sulfur levels is extremely deficient. Which there. should it be? Uh, it should be, it should be um, between 50 and 100 parts per million. And so in pounds, most of those are anywhere from you know, 15 to 20, 25 pounds, and you should have anywhere from 100 to 200 pounds of sulfur there. Okay, so you, you, you get down into the, what they call the, uh, the cations, the exchangeable cations. That's calcium, magnesium, potassium, and sodium. And of course, you'll notice on the first three, they give you a desired value and a value found. And I, I usually put on a deficit or surplus because a lot of times people have surpluses of those things. They have too much of them and they have to be addressed. But you notice how they don't do it on sodium? Yeah. They measured it. Um, and I don't know really why, but you need to know what the desired value is there too. Does anybody grow beets? Cody, you grow bar barley and beets. If you grow sugar beets or you grow cable beets or um, Swiss chard, does anybody grow Swiss chard? How about spinach? The goosefoot family and barley and some other grasses re need a lot of sodium. And you need to have at least a half percent sodium in your soil. It's a saturation percent thing. Um, it's a percentage because they all impact each other. You get the pounds by the percentages, which we're going to look at here in a second. How many pounds? And then I'll tell you an illustration. Hopefully we have enough time here. We'll keep going here. Um, <clears throat> 
So how do you know? You know how many pounds you have, but how many... You can go to, I can go down here where the percentage is. Remember I said you need at least a half percent if you're going to be growing those crops for sure. Um, and he's okay. These would all be okay because they're above 0.5. So you would have adequate sodium with that. But um, I do the same thing all the way down on all of them. Desired value, value found, and deficit. Not everybody, I mean, how many of you would be able to, if, how many of you have seen, well, let me pull it up here. We're just going to deviate from this one for a minute. Sorry, I couldn't put these on slides because they would become too hard to read. How many of you have ever seen a soil test like that? You can't really read it here really well. But over here it says very high, high, medium, low, very low. Has anybody had a soil test like that? Um, and then they give you the number found across here. Let me pull the other one. It's not a graph like this. This happens to be ANL West, um, the way they report theirs. I believe most of the ANL labs report them the same way, whether it's ANL East, there's ANL West, there's ANL Canada. I don't remember how many different ones they are. I think that some of them changed their name. Um, but you'll see the, you'll see next to these, it's kind of blurry. Can you guys see that? Okay, it's kind of, I was afraid that this was be kind of, it was going to blur out because of the resolution. High, low, H, L, M, M. It's high, low, medium. Does that mean anything to anybody? You have a number there. What's it supposed to be? If it says medium, does that mean okay, it's in the right place? What if it says it's high? What does that, what does that mean? Um, or, or if it's low? Do you, most people don't know what to do with that. I had somebody that wanted to save money one time, and I was helping them for free anyway, so I don't know <laughs> why they wanted to save money. Uh, it was one of our mission schools, and they decided to send uh, their samples off to ANL West. Oh. They, they decided to send their samples off to ANL West, and uh, sorry, I think my battery, battery is seeing its better days. And they got it back, and this is what they saw. And they don't have enough knowledge of soil science and agronomy and, you know, what, what all that means. And so they called me up and said, they said, could you help us with that? And I said, I'd love to, but I don't know what they're talking about either. So this is another thing that you need to take in consideration when you're looking at how something, you know, how much something's going to cost you. What is the value of the information you're getting? Okay, a lot of people say, oh, I can get it for half as much, but then they don't get any recommendation with it. And how many people know what to do with it unless somebody tells them what to do with it? How valuable are the numbers if you don't, you don't know what to do with it? Um, so be sure you, and that's why I say you, you need a, a lab test that's going to tell you what you want to have there. And you know that those numbers are, 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 have demonstrated themselves to be uh, accurate, rel, you know, a valuable representation of, of what your condition is. Um, you want to know what you should have there, what you have there, and what you need to apply. And then you need somebody to be able to, uh, you need to either know how to do it. And if you don't know how to do it, that's fine. Uh, but you need to find somebody that knows how to do it because I could take, I've, I've had to help people, other consultants out 
who mess things up because they just took the numbers as they came out of the lab report. So let's say you have the desired value, you have the value found, and you know the deficit. And let's say you're short, like on the sulfur we talked about there. Let's say you're short sulfur. And so you, based on the CEC, you wanted 200 pounds there and you only had 24. You need to apply 176 pounds of nitrogen to get up to your optimum level, right? Uh, so that's what would, if you took those numbers and you just replenished what it said to, to, to resupply, you might make a mistake. I have to look at every single one after I do the preliminary calculations on it and what I'm supposed to have and what I have and what I need to supply or I need to get rid of. Let's say in that case you're, you're deficient, you need to supply that sulfur, but you're also deficient in phosphorus, really deficient in phosphorus. And you're excessive in the cations. You have excessive one of those cations or a couple of them. You have too much magnesium or too much potassium or calcium or whatever. Sulfur leaches those cations out. So you would want to make sure you had the optimum level of sulfur there that you could, right? Because that would help leach out those excessive cations. But sulfur is antagonistic to phosphorus. And so if you're already deficient in phosphorus and you put the, mac the, the, the optimum level of sulfur on there, you're going to suppress that phosphorus even more. And you might have an issue with enough phosphorus available. So then what I have to do, or anybody that's going to work with you or help you, is I have to make an adjustment. So while you may want 200 pounds there, I may only put a, recommend 100. That way you have enough for the crop to grow and the microbes to have everything they need, and you can begin the process of, of removing those excessive cations. But you're not going to you're not going to overly suppress the phosphorus, which you're going to have you're going to be in a, you're going to be applying that, but you're you're trying to build it. And so you have, to, you have to factor things in like that. Most people don't understand. A lot of people that work with, with soil testing and agronomy as consultants, they don't understand that there's a one-to-one there's -one relationship between calcium and magnesium. And you get the numbers back, and, and your magnesium looks great, but you're short calcium, a bunch of calcium, and you go to apply the calcium, and you don't take that into consideration. For every point that calcium goes up, magnesium's going down a point. And we don't have time to, to go in all of that here. But if I just applied high calcium lime to address that, I might push magnesium too low. And then I'm, and then I'm creating a deficiency for the magnesium. So I have to see everything. John Muir, I don't know if any of you have heard of John Muir, but John Muir said one time that when you tug on anything in nature, you find it's connected to everything else. And this is the reality is that, you know, doing one thing is going to impact other things. And you want it to balance Stability. Nature always wants to maintain stability. And so you have to maintain that stability as much as you possibly can in the process of restoration. Um, I have growers who say, I want to do everything I can. And I say, we can, but you're going to create a lot of disturbance. I just want you to understand that. And so it might create you some problems in the short term. It'll straighten out, but um, because you're going to de you're disturbing stuff. You're going you're gonna to destabilize it for a period of time. And, you know, Sometimes you have to deal with things that are unpleasant in the process of doing that. It winds up in a better place, but... Okay, so, you know, again, having somebody tell me it's very low or very high or... I mean, it gives me a general idea I need to do something. If it's high or very high, then I, I know I don't want to put any on. If it's low, very low, I know I'm going to need to put some on, but I don't know how much. I don't, I, it's not telling you... If, if you don't get a recommendation, and some labs do that, but they charge you for that too. You just need to be sure you ask them to do that. You notice that on the Logan Labs one and this one, there's no recommendation. It was just a lab report. 
No, no recommendation. If you want a recommendation, you've got to pay a lot more for it than what you get for the lab analysis. And a lot of people don't take that into consideration. I have more people call me and say, hey, uh, I can, I can kind of give them a general idea with Logan, with these other guys. I, I don't like doing it because if I make, if I make a mistake, and I'm going to talk about Perry Labs, the very lab that I use here when we're wrapping up, which I did, a, I caused a major mistake for somebody by what I recommended because I tried to do something to save some money. And, and it's cost, it took us three years to straighten it out. Three years to straighten it out. And he's had loss of income, loss of yield. Now, I wish I wouldn't have done that. He's the one that wanted to do it. And I, I shouldn't have agreed, agreed to it. Um, he's the one who wanted to do it, so he can't put it back on me and say, I should have had the intelligence to say, you know what, I don't really want to do that because I don't think that I can, I can be accurate with what I tell you to do. Now, we'll look at that in just a second here. And these lab reports came out of the same lab that I used to get the right information. And I'll tell you why it didn't work out that way. Okay, so let me go back to the other one because you can't read this. You'll, you'll see over here, we're going to look at the percentages over here. You'll see them over here on this one. They've got them there. Those percentages, by the way, because they're using a different analytical method, are not going to match up with the model percentages that Dr. Albrecht developed. They're just not going to match up with them. And so if you know what the numbers are supposed to be for this, then those are the numbers you need to shoot for. But what a lot of people are doing is they're taking Albrecht's model and they're trying to apply their analytical numbers to them and they're just, hit, they're just missing the mark constantly. It's just, and I can tell you it's within the last few percentage points, it's within the last few steps that you see major changes happen. And if you never hit those last few steps, you're never going to see that. You're never going to experience that. You should eliminate disease pressure. You should eliminate pest pressure. You should eliminate the vast majority of weed pressure if things are working right. Does that, town, does that sound too remarkable to you? I've done it. I've been on a farm that's 7,000 acres that's done it. 7,000. So it can be little, it can be big. Um, and there's very specific reasons why it happens. But you need to be able to hit the target. You need to have accurate information to get, get you where you need to go. So let me go back to this other one, the Logan one, because it's a lot clearer and um, just to go through that real quick. Okay, so down here you see the base saturation percents. It really should be cation saturation percent um, because, like I said, hydrogen is, uh, and some of the other bases are actually acid cations. They're not alkaline cations. And over here, usually you should have over here, the lab's going to tell you what the desired range is. And so they do here, it's calcium uh, 60 to 70 percent, magnesium 10 to 20 percent, potassium 2 to 5, sodium 0.5 to 3. Other bases it varies. And exchangeable hydrogen, you prefer to have about 10 to 15 percent exchangeable hydrogen. Okay, so now you know that. Well, which is it, 60 or 70? Or 10 or 20? Does it matter as long as you hit in the middle of that? Well, I can tell you what, if you get in the middle of it, you're going to be a whole lot better off than a lot of people are. But somewhere in that range, you're going to be a whole lot better than other people are. But you want, it to, you want it to hit right on where you want it to be. And your exchange capacity is going to determine what percentage of calcium you want 
and what percentage of magnesium, primarily those two. Potassium and sodium is a little bit more independent of that. Um, so in general, on the mainstream cation exchange capacities, the mainstream bucket sizes, you're going to want 68% calcium and 12% magnesium. It goes up and down depending on the exchange capacity because when, as the exchange capacity goes down and the buckets get smaller, get smaller, then you start running into not having enough pounds there. This is particularly the case with magnesium. You need to maintain at least 200 and preferably 250 pounds. And so as you go down, once you drop below um, a, a, an exchange capacity of 5.22, or I'm sorry, 8.68, once you drop below that, you, you have to start changing this in order to maintain adequate magnesium there. And your, mag, your calcium saturation, you're going to lower some, and your magnesium saturation, you're going to raise some. There's a lot more to this dynamic than we have the time to get into, but I'm just saying that there's a very, there's a very specific target you're trying to hit. They're giving you a range there. And the problem with, with uh, Logan is um, I'm, what I'm telling you is what I know to be the right numbers. Uh, I've seen with Advancing Ecoag, who uses Logan Labs, they actually put up here, they don't use Logan's numbers, they put 70 to 75% there. And they're actually closer to correct because Logan, the way I understand it, Logan, when, when, when Albrecht would come up with the Albrecht analytic method, would come up at 68, Logan's going to come up at 70 to 72. And there's other labs that come up at 64. There's, and it's all about how it's analyzed and how it's represented. And so let's say it's supposed to be 72 and, you sh and, and you're shooting for 68. Are you ever going to hit it? You're never going to hit it. What if it's supposed to be 64 and you're, si you're shooting for 68? You're going to overshoot it. And you're going to have too much. So you need to know what the numbers mean. That's why the analytical methods and the model need to be consistent with each other. Nothing to do with competence about how things are analyzed or anything. It's about what the numbers mean. It, it really matters. So you can go down and you should, you should have that on there and you should, on calcium and magnesium, they should be able to tell you which, what percentage of calcium you need based on the CEC and what percentage of magnesium you need. Potassium and sodium, it's, as long as you have a minimum of 0.5 there, the only time that I you know, tweak that is if I know people are growing, like if a grower is growing sugar beets or they're growing barley or they're growing, you know, a person's a big grower of spinach or Swiss chard or, or table beets, we need to make sure there's at least 0.5. It would be a whole lot better if it was 1% there than 0.5 on it. Potassium, it's, you know, see it shows you they're 2 to 5%, but actually uh, if you're growing woody crops, you'd really be better off. And this is on the Albrecht model I'm talking about here, not on Logan because I don't know exactly where these numbers all fall. But you'd be better off at 7% because woody plants use a lot more potassium than, than uh, and that's mostly per perennial plants, use a lot more potassium than, than uh, vegetative plants do, annual plants. Uh, that doesn't, it all, this also includes if you're growing indeterminate tomatoes, pole beans, cucumbers, anything that, that has an indeterminate uh, uh, what's the word I'm trying to think of? Um, an indeterminate growth pattern, anyway. You know, where it, it just wants to keep growing. It has a growing tip, and that growing tip keeps going. Um, you, want to, you want to maintain it a little bit higher 
on that. So does everybody kind of understand that? That this is the stuff you should, this is the information you need to have. And if you don't know what to do with it, you need to make sure that you have, you're working with somebody that does know something to do with it. And if you're not hitting the target, it may take you a few years. This 7,000 acre farm, it took them 15 years to get there. But their profitability is so much higher right now. They're converting it all over to certified organic now because everything's working so well that they can take advantage of the marketing advantage of being certified organic um, and make even more money because, because of that. So they committed to it and, and it took them 15 years, but and they're working with these, I mean, you know what the prices of food are. I mean, if you've tried to go to a farmer's market and everything, it's one thing if you go to some big city where people think they have all kinds of money to spend, but go to some place where I live, we kind of live in the transition between the bluegrass and, and Appalachia in Kentucky. And so we're surrounded by multi-million dollar horse farms and shacks. Little, the original tiny houses, these little, these, it's unbelievable <laughs> the people that live in these. And this is something we have to be mindful of because whenever we're doing what we're doing, um, we, the people that have the money they think they have, which is just really financial engineering, uh, may not always have that luxury. And if you geared everything you were doing to be dependent on that, and you can't supply the person living in the shack because they have nothing, and they can't really afford it, you have to get to the point where you're productive enough that you have the generosity, the capacity to be generous towards people and be able to supply. Because, I mean, God's looking out for those people as much as he is the, the people that have their financially engineered wealth. Are you um, can you hold it for just a minute? I need to check my time. We're just about out of time here, so let me see if there's anything else I want to... Let me just move to this one. Um, you'll see on the bottom here, just let me point that out real quick, that they go to parts per million with the trace elements because it tends to be a smaller number, particularly with copper and, and zinc, uh, and uh, not aluminum, but cobalt and molybdenum. You're talking about a lot smaller numbers. And so you have to convert it. Remember you said you multiply it times two and it'll tell you how many pounds you have. But you notice they don't tell you how many pounds you need here. Is that a good number? Is it a bad number? You don't know. You don't know whether you're fine and whether you need to apply it or not. Let me, where is my... Okay, I'll go back to that other one here. Let me just show you. This is the way you get a recommendation from me. And so you'll see if I just blacked that out because I didn't get permission from the grower to use this, so I didn't want his name and everything up there, so I just, I just covered it up. Um, you'll see the crop he's growing is blueberries. I work with a lot of blueberry growers. We actually, they've actually started a co-op in Kentucky where all the growers, because they're winding up producing a higher quality berry, and so they wanted to have their own co-op that they marketed it through. And everything. So I work with a lot of blueberry growers. Um, you'll have a total exchange capacity, pH of the soil sample, the humus, I actually say the humus content in here because it's actual colloidal humus that's being measured here on that. And these happen to be his numbers. And then under that, a desired calcium magnesium percent. So you'll see on there 6812. So you know what you're supposed to be shooting for. Um, and then, then here you have what it is. So in this case, Remember I said in Kentucky all the limestone quarries are, are high calcium lime? So I always see this. These guys are always way 
too high in calcium. So you've got 83.86% calcium. The university, although I had two of my growers speak at the, the fruit and vegetable growers conference in Kentucky, two of them, one guy did a presentation deliberately on mineralization. He's the blueberry nursery in Kentucky. And all of the big guys from the university were there listening to his presentation. And, and then I had another grower who did so good in his first year of growing that they didn't realize that what he was going to share as <laughs> to why. But, you know, that they had share that year about, you know, how things went as a first, first year and everything. Um, but most people would tell you if, with that percentage of calcium, there's no way you're going to grow blueberries. There's no way. And I can tell you there's lots of blueberry growers growing blueberries with that much calcium in the soil. So he needs to bring that down, and we're working on that. But, you know, he has a problem here. He doesn't have enough magnesium. Remember I said these guys always wind up not having enough magnesium. It's not that he doesn't have enough magnesium in that soil, by the way. Those two should add up to 80% all the time. And what do they add up to? 93 plus? 93 plus. What that tells you is there's more magnesium there. It's just being suppressed by calcium. There's more magnesium there, but he has to have at least 10% saturation available in order to get enough magnesium. So we had to add magnesium. You see down here? We had to add magnesium to that soil in order to make sure that, uh, that he had it. Um, and on and down, okay, you'll see on mine, two to seven and a half percent. You can actually have up to seven and a half percent, and I don't have time to explain why up to that and not past that. Um, but, you know, the percent sodium, other bases, other bases just representing all those other trace elements, uh, metals that, that are in the soil, but they're in the soil in small quantities. And they have a way of, calc that's a calculated number there. But of course, exchangeable hydrogen, there isn't any because of, uh, he's above seven on his pH. The ENR value there, and then you start working your way down here. Oh, I've got to do it this way, sorry. You start working your way down, and you'll see on nitrogen there's no desired value. Nitrogen is the one thing that's going to be crop dependent, and you have to target it to the crop. and so. That's why there's not a desired value there because, because of that. Um, but then you'll see on sulfur there's a desired value, a value found in his case is very deficient. So you'll see, I'll put over here, I'll put very deficient, deficient, very high, excessive. It's kind of like the, the low, medium, high, very high. But at least you know what that means because there's a desired value there. And you'll notice I represent it instead of P2O5, it's actually represented as elemental phosphorus. So that's why there's this. The numbers would be different than you might see on another, another test. And on down through there, um, calcium, magnesium, potassium, sodium, all of the trace elements, desired value, the value found, and a deficit or a surplus. And usually it's highlighted if that surplus is a problem, where it is with calcium, you'll see it there highlighted as a problem. Uh, and then, you know, over on the side if it is or otherwise. Could you take this? Could you take this and, and understand it and know what to do with it? That's what you should expect from a soil test, unless, unless you know what to do with it.
How many of you know what to do with it on your own if you just got a lab report? I'm not picking on you. It's just the reality. I mean, if you don't, you don't. And you need to, you need to if you're going to use another lab, I'm not telling you you have to use Kinsiag or, or, or work with me or any of that. I'm, what I'm saying to you is you need to know that what you're paying for is going to be worth what you got. And you're going to know what to do with it. So um, we have to stop. So what I'm going to do, I will be happy to answer some questions. But do you think you understand a little bit more about you know, a soil test and your ex what your expectations should be? Um, and expect that from them. They should be able to answer your questions. They should be able to answer. What is the desired value? If they say, oh, well, we really can't tell you that, we don't, then I suggest you find another lab. Thank you, everybody, for your um, attention. I hope, I hope it was helpful. This media was brought to you by Audioverse, a website dedicated to spreading God's word through free sermon audio and much more. If you would like to know more about Audioverse, or if you would like to listen to more sermons, please visit www.audioverse.org.